Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. On the line with us is the senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, one of the really, truly great progressive think tanks out there, the director of the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality and the common good, and the co-editor of inequality.org, the author of the new book, The Wealth Hoarders, Chuck Collins. And Chuck, welcome back to the program. It's, it's, it's been a while since we've talked. These papers, these being coined the Pandora Papers. This is pretty shocking stuff. For people who haven't been following what's going on with the Pandora Papers, you want to start at the beginning and tell us what is going on, how this all came out, and what what they tell us about the world's financial system and the, the morbidly rich. Yeah. Well, the Pandora par- Papers are a result of a leak. Uh, and people may remember five and a half years ago, there was something called the Panama Papers, which was a leak out of one law firm in Panama that created all kinds of shell companies that the super rich used to sort of hide their money. Well, the Pandora Papers is a massive leak from 14 different kind of wealth service firms from around the world. And it, uh, it names names. It, you know, there's 360 major politicians from different countries. Um, it shows the sort of how the systems work, how the super rich kind of play shell games using anonymous shell companies and trusts and uh, offshore banking and the whole bit. But one of the biggest important findings is the United States is one of the biggest tax havens now. So billionaires and criminals bring their money to the United States and park it here because of our uh, weak transparency systems. Truly remarkable. South Dakota being at the top of that list, I want to dig into that. The two things that really surprised me as I was reading the reporting on this was, number one, that there were no American billionaires on there or even just mind-bogglingly wealthy individuals. Is that because this is principally a scheme that was working for foreigners? Because there's certainly a lot of money being put into South Dakota. Tom, the reason we not see a lot of U.S. names is because the wealth service firms that leak the money are not places where the super rich in the U.S. go. You know, they don't, they don't go to Cyprus or Belize to their financial services. So these are all overseas uh, sources. So, yeah, so we don't have a leak from a U.S. wealth advisory firm. I should say that would be really helpful to helping explain how this really plays out in the United States. So if there's anybody working in those companies and they want to 
send me some information. I'm available. But, but in all seriousness, super rich and billionaires from the U.S. use the same tools that are exposed here. They use offshore bank accounts. They use anonymous shell companies. They use trusts that are sort of rigged to favor the rich. They use all the same tools to protect and sequester their money and avoid taxes. To make this understandable to the average person, because there's a lot of technical stuff here as well, if somebody had a $100,000 nest egg, which is you know, a big deal in, you know, for a middle-class family or a person approaching retirement in America, you know, half of Americans, more than half of Americans can't even deal with the $1,000 expense. Um, but, but if somebody had a $100,000 nest egg, and they could do what rich people do with it, truly rich people, like, like these papers have revealed, what would they be doing versus what must they do because they're not a billionaire? Well, uh, chances are they, they, they can't do the same things that the billionaires are doing. I mean, we're talking about people who, who typically have wealth starting at about $30 billion. They hire what's called the wealth defense industry. They hire tax attorneys, accountants, wealth managers who help them navigate this global world. And, and those wealth managers have a lot of uh, expensive tools that they use to help the super rich kind of game the system. So, you know, I'm sorry to say that your $100,000 nest egg, you're not going to be able to hire the kind of Yeah, that wouldn't even pay for the first at. day's work from one of these wealth management companies. Yeah, that's my hourly rate, really. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I get it. I totally get it. So tell me about South Dakota. Why South Dakota? South Dakota made a decision in the 1980s that it was going to kind of change its laws to attract the trust industry. So, you know, wealthy representatives of some super wealthy families went to the governor of South Dakota and said, hey, if you change this law that makes trusts have to dissolve after a certain period of time, We'll move all our money to South Dakota. You want to define a trust real quickly here? Yeah, a trust is kind of like a ownership entity. It's just a way that wealth and assets can be held. But so it's, it's kind of like your money bin. <laughs> it's your money bin. It's a it's a weird form in that it, um, you know, it's not like someone has a trust. They have to register it, or it's like a contract almost. You know, mm -hmm. you and I form a contract. So there's usually somebody who puts the money in the trust. There's somebody who's supposed to receive the money, and then there's somebody who's the trustee who oversees it. What these wealth defense industry people have done is they've kind of distorted and morphed the structure so that it puts the wealth into kind of limbo. Like, who owns it? Who, you know, can this be taxed? Can can that person, uh, you know, who who ripped off their customers, will they? How do we get the money back? You know, well, these trusts are are designed to be impervious. So it's just an ownership system. It's complicated, but actually it's at the heart of one of the things that's broken. We need to change trust law in the United States so these manipulations can't happen. But how do you do that when the Supreme Court has said that if billionaires want to own politicians, that's free speech, that's not corruption or bribery, and the billionaires don't want the trusts to go away? Yeah. No, I mean, we're obviously uh, you know, up again. It's a heavy lift, as they say. But, first of all, the rest of the world now is going to be kicking the U.S. rear on this topic because, you know, we've been going around saying, hey, you know, Guatemala, end your corruption. Hey, uh, Caribbean islands, stop being a tax haven. And now the U.S. is the tax haven. Right. Um, and so other countries are going to be saying to us, 
hey, you want to, you know, engage in a treaty with us uh, to get information from us? Well, clean up your house, clean up your act. Um, the other thing is that these, this harm, this hidden wealth system, really harms people. It's the hospital that wasn't built. It's the tax dollars that weren't paid by the super rich. It's the coddling of the criminals and kleptocrats who've stolen money from around the world and bringing it here to the U.S. So we're like the getaway car drivers. And it's fueling grotesque inequality. So it, it it's harming the rest of society. So there is a counter, you know, the possibility of really building that countervailing power. A year ago, Congress passed something called the Corporate Transparency Act that requires shell companies to disclose who their real owners are to the Treasury Department. Well, that's a huge first step. Yeah. And we can follow that playbook and pass national laws that will shut down this hidden wealth industry. That is absolutely great. Chuck Collins, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, ips-dc.org. And uh, Chuck9921, T-O, digit one, is his uh, Twitter handle. Chuck, thanks so much for dropping by and, and telling us you all bet. about this. Explain it all. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Okay, good talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Speaking the truth, the morbidly rich would really rather you don't know all about. We'll be right back. Oh, I got a crazy alert for you. This is truly crazy. Martha Huckabee, who was the leader of the Republican Women's Club of New Orleans, is very, very upset because the uh, Republican Party there down in uh, New Orleans and uh, statewide, in fact, the uh, state Republican Party has stripped her affiliation from the Republican Party. And she doesn't understand it. Uh, She had created a Facebook post, a very public Facebook post, claiming that slavery fostered hardworking ethics and love and respect. Don't you know? And it got some publicity and it was kind of embarrassing to the Republicans that one of their own, in fact, the leader of the Republican Women's Club of New Orleans was saying, hey, slavery was a good thing, actually. It was wonderful. And so they kicked her out. And now here's what she has to say. They identify themselves as trustworthy Republicans. However, just at the time you need their support, you know, when you're supporting slavery, uh, they knife you in the back. They cancel you. They cancel your righteous agenda. They neutralize your momentum. Yes, we don't want momentum towards slavery. She, She goes on to say that this is all the result of cancel culture. And the reason the Republicans canceled her was because Democrats are infiltrating the Republican Party. Really? I don't think so. Constance in Cape Coral, Florida. Hey, Constance, what's on your mind today? I have been wondering, does Edward Snowden have a knowledge of connection with uh, Mark Zuckerberg? Because it seems to me the two of them together, one uh, helped pad away, and then the other one did you know we know what zuckerberg has done disrupting all these countries disrupting our allies it's been and where did snowden run to russia so this couldn't please our enemies any more than than you know everything zuckerberg has done done pleases our enemies 
and it is defiling our democracy and our sovereignty as a country uh, of, you know, being good people mm-hmm. that we try to be. Yeah. And this is like padding the way for the black market. I worry about the women of the world. And now I'm worried about the women of our country being programmed to be sex slaves. Because this Kardashian thing with these women, the body image that they portrayed to young girls from that long ago, now, I don't think they particularly that, that, had anything yeah, to do with is, it. Yeah, that is just going crazy on, on, on exactly. Facebook. I get it. Yeah, no, Constance, thank you for the call. Um, the thing, I, I think that we're talking about two separate things here. You know, Ed Snowden revealed that the U.S. government was spying on its own citizens and in ways that were just mind-boggling and extensive beyond anything we imagined. What Mark Zuckerberg has been doing with Facebook, and I, I wrote about this yesterday in, in my op-ed over Harbin Report titled, It's the Algorithm Stupid, and, uh, and, and I talked about it yesterday on the program. What, what Zuckerberg is doing is tweaking the algorithm. The algorithm is the, the mathematical formula that runs kind of the, the software that runs, the, the engine that runs Facebook and, and, and any other social media system. You can run a social media system one of two ways. I have a Facebook account. I also have an account with, I think it's nextdoor.com or something like that. It's this, it's this thing for neighborhoods. A lot of people do. So on the next door thing, a couple of days ago, somebody in our neighborhood in Portland posted this thing that one of the local hotels was being filled with drug addicts and hookers and it was going to be a terrible thing and the and the city was paying to put these people in there and and uh, look out and you know all hell is going to break loose now had somebody posted something like that on Facebook and by the way it was not true had somebody posted something like that on Facebook the Facebook algorithm would have taken that post and pushed it out into the timelines of lots and lots of other people who are freaked out about crime, who are freaked out about prostitution in their neighborhoods, about drugs in their neighborhoods, and just like fed them red meat. Hey, look at this, look at this. Right, that's basically what his algorithm does. The woman who was the, you know, what's her name, Frances Haugen, uh, yesterday was testifying before Congress, you know, just laid it out. She called it being, being twitchy, right, reactive. On this next door app, this person posted this thing, and because it doesn't push out posts to people, it just kind of sits there on a chronological timeline for the community. This morning, there were over 20 people who had gone in and said, you know, I called the hotel, and they said that's not happening. I called the city, they said that, you know, basically it just got debunked. And there were people going, you know, why are you saying this stuff? This is crazy stuff. Are you trying to crank people up? But see, it didn't go viral. It didn't go nuts because that next door neighbor social media site doesn't use an algorithm to pump that stuff out. Therefore, it will never be as massively profitable as Facebook. But it also will not do the kind of damage to democracies and if it was international countries around the world that is being done by not just Facebook, but other social media that chooses to use algorithms that drive not just engagement, but rage. And that's the problem, in my opinion. Dylan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Dylan, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. I know right when uh, COVID happened, it sort of took our attention away from a lot of world matters that are going on. And one of them that I was always interested about was the England breaking off from the EU. 
And I know that Richard Wolf mentioned it at the end of the segment with him. Mm-hmm. And and I sort of wanted to get more information if you if you happen to have it, how England is uh, how they're how they're doing since they broke off and how uh, like Richard Wolf said that they're doing bad. Yeah. So I can have some, you know, some firepower when the uh, the uh, water uh, <laughs> the water cooler you know works. I mean? Yeah, yeah. I get it, Dylan. Um, let me give you some. First of all, the the short answer is that Britain right now is experiencing a crisis. There's there's parts of England that don't have gasoline because they don't have enough truck drivers to get the gasoline to the gas stations because most of the truck drivers in England over the last 20, 30 years had been immigrants from other parts of Europe where their wages were much lower, uh, mostly from Poland and the former you know, Soviet countries. Um, because it was part of the EU, they could simply move to England and get a job as a truck driver, and they would work for much lower wages than British citizens would work for. And so the industry, uh, many industries in England, in fact, had, or in the United Kingdom, had become very dependent um, upon cheap labor from the lower-income countries uh, in, in Europe, because you've got a huge spectrum. You've got you know, super high-income Germany. You've got kind of middle-income France, but it's also kind of super high-income. Then you've got the middle-income Spain, let's say, and then you've got the very low-income you know, uh, from, from uh, Greece to, to Poland. And so when they did Brexit, what they said is, you can no longer come into our country just on your European Union passport. You've got to be a British citizen if you're going to work in, in Great Britain. Or you've got to have a visa, a work permit to work here. And so that immediately, you know, like 10, 15, 20,000 truck drivers had to leave the country and go back to Poland or wherever they came from. And the Brits were like, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years. All the old British truck drivers have retired. We got no people. And so now they're importing people into the country to do those jobs. And it's not just the truck drivers, but that's the one that's the most obvious and that leads the BBC News almost every single day right now. Now, that's the, that's the kind of immediate little micro view of it. There's a much, much larger macro view, which is the, the book that I'm writing right now, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. And what this is, is it, it, this goes back to the 1940s and 1950s, and this idea that animated American neoliberalism, but that also animated the creation of the European Union, which was that if we did away with national boundaries, with the exception of the ability of people to move through them. Um, but if we did away with national boundaries and let basically businesses decide where to put their factories rather than having countries decide that, and if we just it turned it into a giant one world economy, that would get us to world peace because every country would be so interdependent with every other country that they would never want to go to war and blow up their own economy. This was adopted, uh, this was pushed really, really hard in the United States by Reagan, which led to the creation of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, the GATT. Then Reagan negotiated this thing called NAFTA. Oh, actually, it was George Herbert Walker Bush who finally negotiated it. It wasn't signed into law until Bill Clinton became president, but it was Bush who put the thing together, where you had this North American Free Trade Agreement, which basically did away with the borders uh, between the United States and Canada, the borders between the United States and Mexico, with regard to everything except human beings. Human beings still couldn't pass through those borders without permission, but money could and products could. And so factories got built all over the place. And then that was followed by the World Trade Organization, multilateral trade deals that allowed over the last 
40 years since, since Reagan came into office, we have lost 60,000 factories and between five and 10 million jobs, depending on, and it could, you could arguably even say 20 or 30 million jobs, because those are just the jobs from people in the factories. Uh, now those jobs are being, you know, the toasters are being made in China, the clothes are being made in Vietnam, the, the you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, when the factory was there in Flint, Michigan, not only did people work in the factory, but the people who worked at the factory ate at the local diner. And so the local diner jobs, you could say, really were part of that, too. So we didn't just lose the 10 million factory jobs. We probably lost 30 or 40 million jobs. And it's why, you know, it's led to this hollowing out of the American middle class. Well, the Brits saw the exact same thing with the European Union. And the idea of the European Union was the same thing. It was this neoliberal idea that if we all get together and trade together, as one unified trade block, then we'll never go to war with each other again. And this is, you know, a, a continent that had had two world wars within 30 years, you know, World War I and World War II. And they just didn't want to repeat that again. And so that's why they put together the European Union, thinking that this would be the utopian thing would fix this. But what happened was the exact same thing that happened to the United States. Um, the cheap labor, uh, you know, dis distorted economies. It distorted them in a slightly different way, but in Great Britain, a lot of the factories got shut down and they got reopened in Poland or in, in uh, Spain or whatever. Um, and they started importing goods from, from China. There's, you know, Chinese goods all over British stores now. And so the mm -hmm. whole Brexit movement was very much like Donald Trump's and Bernie Sanders, by the way, Bernie Sanders and, and Sherrod Brown will tell you the same thing. I mean, they're, they're all anti-neoliberalism, anti-so-called free trade. Um, saying, no, countries should protect their own workers. Countries should regulate their economies in ways that protect their workers. And so that was the idea behind Brexit, was Britain for Britons. We're going to bring our jobs back home, uh, the, and we're going to force employers to pay a decent wage to our truck drivers, which they're starting to have to do. And that's what's happening. They are going to go through a period. They're going to go through a period of probably two, three, four years, maybe as much as a decade, where the economy goes back to being kind of a normal economy, where wages rise up to the point where the average British person will say, or the you know, English person will say, oh yeah, I'll become a truck driver. Sure, that's a good paying job. I can do that for the rest of my life. I think, frankly, Brexit will be a good thing for England. I realize that many of my progressive colleagues think I'm nuts in this regard, but I'm not a fan of neoliberalism or so-called free trade or the way the European Union, at least that part of it, was constructed. I think it's the Schengen Agreement, if I'm pronouncing it right. So that's what's going on. Dylan, did I answer your question? That was a lot of good information. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dylan. Joe in uh, Covina, California. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? The COVID's already taken uh, 700,000 lives and rising. Yes, here in the United that's States. Big. The rest of the world, you know, or the rest of the developed world seems to be getting a handle on it. But us in Brazil, we're in a world of hurt. Anyway, uh, and then people uh, scream about the immigrants coming in, too many of them. How come we, let, we can't let uh, 700,000 of them in, and then we start screaming when it reaches 700,000? The only thing is, I don't know how many immigrants the U.S. leaves in every every year or whatever. I don't know that. Yeah, prior, prior to Trump, we were averaging around a million immigrants a year. And, you know, which added a lot of vitality to our economy because uh, there's this kind of immigrant ethos of, you know, I'm going to work my way up and, 
and, and make things happen. And, and, it, and it provided cheap labor also for a lot of industries that have uh, become addicted to cheap labor. But the actual immigrants were not providing that cheap labor so much as, as were the people who are here without immigration status. Trump cut that down to fewer than 100,000 a year, I believe. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, and it's been a while since I've read anything about it, but Trump radically cut back immigration um, during the time that he was president. And I believe that it's going to be going back to normal, but I'm not sure where it's at right now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to tie it to the loss of life from, from, um, from COVID. I mean, that's a, that's a disaster, and that's a disaster because Trump screwed it up so badly. And now they're trying to continue the Trump screw-up so that it'll mess with the economy so that, you know, Joe Biden and the Democrats will take the blame for it. That's what I know about that. Ethan in Portland. Hey, Ethan, what's on your mind? I got a historical question, something that's bothered me for ages. I'm sure it's off topic. But in the run-up to the Iraq war, Bush demanded documentation from Saddam about his weapons of mass destruction. Saddam produced a, a large report that apparently was vague and meandering. Bush rejected it and demanded something better. And uh, there was a deadline. I think Saddam missed the deadline, but he did produce a report on his weapons of mass destruction. And I think that was like a Friday. And then on the Sunday, Bush said, oh, too late. We're going to war. You, you've missed your chance. And I never heard another word in the media about that report. What was in it? Could its contents have presented the Iraq war? Had they been made public or were or whether they were ever examined. Just wondered if you knew anything about it or if my memory is correct here. Well, Bush was absolutely committed to going to war. He, I'm going to have a war. He was gonna have his war no matter what, because he saw that as the key to getting reelected in 2004, and it turns out it was. The other thing, Ethan, that we have to remember is that it wasn't just Saddam Hussein saying there's no weapons of mass destruction here. The United Nations sent in a weapons inspectors team, Hans Blick, who was you know, widely respected and regarded around the world. And then here from the United States, we had Lieutenant Colonel Scott Ritter, who was on this program at least a dozen times during that time, uh, you know, telling people what he was finding. And they were, you know, both of them saying unambiguously to the world, not just to the United States, but, you know, from the platform of the United Nations, there are no weapons of mass destruction in this country. None. Zero. We have looked everywhere. And Saddam Hussein gave them complete carte blanche. Now, there were a couple of places where he wouldn't let them in initially because he said these are security installations and Scott Ritter is an American and I'm not sure I trust you guys. He eventually even let them into those places. So, uh, you know, as Scott Ritter talked about on this program back, back you know, in <laughs> 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And so I don't think that that document would have made any difference, Ethan. I th- you know, I think George, George, George W. Bush wanted to have his war. It was part of his reelection strategy. It was how he was going to get uh, Social Security and Medicare privatized. Uh, and, he's, um, and he actually succeeded in, in privatizing a good chunk of Medicare. About 40% of people on Medicare right now are on private plans, on, on Medicare Advantage plans, because of George W. Bush. Uh, and because he, because he got that war. Diana in Prince, Preston, Idaho. Hey, Diana. Thank you for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Just wanted to say I would, I would not discourage the children, no matter what color they are, from adopting Native American dress or ways, especially in relationship to the earth. There's an old uh, American, uh, Native American saying that I grew up hearing all my life, and that was when the white 
white man, well, they used to say in the old days, you know, the white man starts to adopt American, you know, Native Americans, well, they use different terminology in those days, ways there will be peace mm-hmm. on earth. That's that's the that's I grew up here. So I wouldn't discourage. I, I lived in New Mexico in the 60s when all the hippies came down there and we never discouraged any of them. Uh, we took them and taught them pottery and beadwork and basket making and, you know, all about uh, gathering. And, you know, there were a lot of things that I wouldn't discourage. I wouldn't discourage that. I agree. I agree with you, Diana. And that's the essence of the of the piece that I wrote over HartmanReport.com today. It's called The Lost People. And uh, Frank, and and my apologies, I can't remember Frank's last name, but he was this older Native American guy that I was sitting with at this at this council circle, at this talking circle at the at this uh, meeting in in upstate Massachusetts in 1998, a harvest gathering. Um, And and, you know, he asked me, why are these white kids dressing like Indians? And my response was essentially because white culture is a lost culture. White culture has been stripped, and, and, and by white culture, I mean, you know, he, he and I were talking in those terms. As, as you point out, you know, language changes over time. I would say, you know, arguably you could call this modern culture, Western culture, industrialized culture, whatever. But that that culture has lost its connection to the earth. That culture has lost Absolutely. its connection to sustainability. That law, that culture, this culture that we're, you know, that that I'm a part of, having you know grown up as a as a as a white guy in the United States, and that African Americans are a part of, having grown up also stripped away from their their roots, you know, in Africa, their their you know their their tribal traditions and and languages and everything, and and Europeans were stripped away. That has all produced a hollowness. It, is, it has produced a, a world full of hungry ghosts who are just robbing and raping and pillaging the planet. And if we don't learn from Native Americans, we are really and truly and deeply in trouble because the Native American societies learn through trial and error, making mistakes and learning from them how to live collaboratively and cooperatively with the planet. And we don't know how to do that right now. Oh, thank you for saying that so beautifully. Thank oh, thank you, you Diana. And thank, and thank you for the call. And thanks for bringing up the topic. The piece that I wrote over at Harbin Report today, I think is one of the most important I've written in a long, long time. It's free. There's, you know, you don't have to, to subscribe. You don't have to, there's no ads. It's, you know, you just read it. HartmanReport.com. It's called The Lost People. And I, I encourage you to check it out. Gregory in Ventura, California. Hey, Gregory, what's up? Video games. Before social network, before, you know, those horrible video games that taught the kids how to kill and build their own, you know, uh, kingdoms and whatnot, competition. Whatever regulations they slapped, if they did, on the video game people, could they not use some of those same regulations, maybe, on Facebook? Because it's kind of the same addiction, but yeah. video games kind of started it all. You know? With the video games, I think to the extent that there was regulation, it had to do with uh, obscene content and advertising, although I don't. I don't recall any specific laws that actually were put into place around video games. I know there's a lot of sturm and drang, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, rage and fury about them, and about yeah, yeah. and about you know obscenity and lyrics. You'll recall Tipper Gore going, you know, getting on her high horse about labeling children's or labeling uh, rock and roll if it had you know bad content. But I don't think any. Yeah. I, I think that was always just you know entirely kind of voluntary. 
Um, but yeah, but, yeah, like parental parental guidance or something. Yeah, and and you yeah. know, I, I I ran a I ran about twenty forums on CompuServe back in the uh, in, throughout the nineteen eighties and the early nineteen nineties, and. Uh, we did not have an algorithm. We, you know, we had a message board where you could post things, and we had moderators who could, you know, remove posts if they were wrong or obscene. We could ban people. Uh, you had to, uh-huh. you know, use your real identity. Um, but it wasn't driving. It wasn't saying, okay, we're going to. In fact, we didn't even have the ability to do it as moderators to say, we're going to take this particular piece of content here that we think is just really inflammatory, and we're going to push it right out in front of everybody to try to start a food fight, you know, on the idea that the food fight will cause people to hang out on CompuServe longer. And, and I think one of the reasons why CompuServe had no in- incentive to do that was that people paid $7 a month subscription to be on CompuServe. And so, you know, it wasn't an advertising-driven model. So if somebody stayed on CompuServe for 10 minutes a, a month or if they stayed on there for 10 hours a month, it made no difference to CompuServe's revenue. And that might be a solution is to say, okay, you know, just this whole advertising-driven business model. But that's a tough one because then you've got television and radio and all kinds of other media that are advertising-driven, including this program. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy alert, Franklin Graham. It's communism for the FBI to investigate school boards. Yes, seriously. School boards. Now, we have school boards in uh, Virginia, Arizona, Connecticut, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Vermont who have so far reported officially death threats and, and clear examples of violent intimidation in those states. So what is this religious hustler, Franklin Graham, who's running ads on TV saying, are you having a tough time? Call this number and we'll pray with you. And then we'll ask you for money for the rest of your life. Oh, he's not saying the last part. It's just what happens. But anyhow, Franklin Graham comes out and says, and I quote, it's an ominous sign when the government uses its power to try to silence the voice of the people. Keep in mind, he's talking about people who are showing up at school board meetings and threatening people. I know where you live. I'm coming for you. He said, It's an ominous sign when the government uses its power to try to silence the voice of the people. That's how communism works. Anyone who speaks against communism or the goal of communism becomes the enemy. So let me get this straight. Parents who, or people, in fact, a lot of these people showing up at these school board meetings are not even parents. They're just local QAnon folks. People showing up at school board meetings yelling and screaming and threatening school boards that they don't think children should wear masks are fighting communism in Franklin Graham's mind. He says, uh, anyone who speaks against communism or the goals of communism becomes the enemy. We're seeing this happen right in our own country. The Biden administration, which bows to the radical progressive left, would like to silence parents who voice strong opinion. Really? He said, this tactic of intimidation is meant to silence parents with views the left doesn't agree with. We cannot let the government take over the parenting of our children. Really? He goes on to say, if anti-woke, anti-socialism, anti-communism citizens like us do not speak up, get involved, and take a stand to preserve what we have in this country, it will disappear right before our eyes in just one generation. Amazing. And I, 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 it's, it's just amazing. I see, the, I see his ads on TV, and it's like, oh, my God, I know what a scam these guys are. I used to work in radio. You know, they, there's radio stations that lease their stations 
to these religious broadcasters and you know by the hour and so let's say they're selling their time for three hundred dollars an hour to a religious show so that religious show has to bring in more than three hundred dollars an hour to pay for it and so you know they spend half the show begging for money and if they can bring in five hundred dollars an hour or six hundred dollars an hour they just keep doing it and they stay on the air it's a business except that it's entirely exempt from taxation you and i are subsidizing it amazing jeff in fort worth texas hey jeff thanks for listening to sirius xm what's on your mind today yeah, um, I'm trying to find it. I'm sure you can Google it. But I'm pretty sure that the 14th Amendment might be Article 4. I, was, I thought it was Section 4. Expressly forbids the uh, questioning of the national debt. Correct. And so doesn't that make the debt ceiling unconstitutional on its face? I believe so. This is Section 4 of, of, uh, the, for, of the uh, 14th Amendment. The validity of the yeah. public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. So exactly. There you go. And I mean, so this was all about. Why doesn't Janice, Janice Yelton just pay it and, and dare anybody to, uh, to, to challenge her on it? I have been recommending that for years, whenever the debt ceiling is, is brought up, Jeff. And, uh, yeah, and, it, and I can't quote you who, where I saw it, but I believe that I, I heard somewhere that that had been done once before. I, don't I believe that Richard. Or, I believe it, it was Richard Nixon, and he threatened to do it. Um, I could be wrong. I, I, it was a vague it recollection. Was, it was before. It was the early 1900s, if I recall okay. correctly. But, All right. but I'm just telling you. Here's here's the reason why they're not doing it, Jeff. Because if something, you know, that would immediately get thrown to the courts, and the time period from whenever it was that the executive branch asserted that this law was unconstitutional and therefore they're just going to go ahead and pay bills and the time that the yeah. supreme court hears the arguments and rules on it is going to be a period of you know if it was an emergency it might be a week or three if it's if they don't deal with it on an emergency basis it could be six months during that time period the debt of the united states is in doubt Right, because the whole world is watching, going, well, it could go this way, it could go that way, and there's 20 trillion dollars worth of federal debt out there. Now, yeah, you know, the federal government owns about five trillion of it, but you know, China owns a trillion of it, and it's, et cetera, et cetera, and that debt will just blow up in our faces. You know, the interest rates will go up, people won't be buying uh, treasury bonds. I mean, that just just that action in and of itself could be enough if it's taken when the debt is about to collapse that action could be the thing that that provokes the worldwide great depression that then provokes world war three you know uh the way to do it in my opinion and, and i've written about this before is for the executive branch to uh, at, you know after the debt ceiling gets raised when there's no argument or debate about it at that point for them to sue essentially congress uh, although uh, i don't know exactly how this would work but but you know to essentially sue before the Supreme Court arguing that this law is unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment and let it get all worked out over the next six months before it's a crisis so that there's no actual debate about it. Does that make sense? Well, yes, but wouldn't that be now since they just raised it until December? No. And, and that gives the court... No, because they, they only raised it for the a court, few weeks. The they, they raised it for six weeks or eight, uh, you know, yeah, eight, eight or ten weeks. That's not enough time to work something through the Supreme Court. 
and there's still the you know and and McConnell is still dangling this this sort of Damocles here you know over uh, over the entire U.S. economy, frankly. Um, so no, yeah. it, it, well, it would have to be done. Frankly, you know the problem is that. Um, you know, every time there's a Republican in the White House, this is Jude Wadiski's two Santa Claus theory on steroids. Every time there's a Republican in the White House, they spend like crazy. Donald Trump ran up eight trillion dollars in debt, and about two and a half trillion of that came from his tax cuts. Um, but he ran up eight trillion dollars in debt, and this effort to raise the debt ceiling is to pay off Donald Trump's debt. And you know, whenever there's a Republican in the White House. They just say, oh, debt ceiling, there's no debt ceiling, no problem, more debt, more debt, more debt. Yeah, run it up, run it up, make the economy look good, you know, pump the economy as hard as you can. And then as soon as a Democrat comes into office, it's like, put on the brakes on the economy. We got to blame, we got to have a recession. We got to blame it on that Democrat. And if the Democrats try to raise the debt ceiling or if they try to spend more money, or if they, you know, we got to scream about the national debt. You wouldn't do that in your home, would you? Would you put that money in your credit card? Would you take out a second mortgage? You know, all this hysteria. And they have been doing this since the Reagan administration. Reagan was the first president to fully embrace Jude Wininsky's two Santa Claus theory. To He tripled the national debt and dared the Democrats to do anything about it. He, he, by tripling the national debt, he, he got the, con- the country out of uh, what Jerry Ford referred to as stagflation, and Jimmy Carter kind of inherited. Um, he got the, the country out of that. Sure, it was a huge stimulus. But he also then, you know, ran up the debt that George Herbert Walker Bush ran up the debt another trillion or so. And then as soon as Bill Clinton comes into office, the Republicans start getting all hysterical and screaming about the national debt. And what does Bill Clinton do? Sure enough, let's gut welfare. Let's end welfare as we know it. The era of big government is over. And, and Bill Clinton left office with a balanced budget. He had two balanced budgets. There has been no Republican since Dwight Eisenhower who had a balanced budget. And I'm not sure Dwight Eisenhower did, frankly. But you have had two, Repo- two Democratic presidents, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, who have both had balanced budgets as a result of Republicans squealing about this. And, you know, no matter what you give the Republicans, it's never enough and it never satisfies them because they're trying to crash the economy. That's what's going on right now. Mitch McConnell is trying to produce a recession that, because when the country is in recession, whichever party is in power loses seats in the next election. And there's an election coming up in 13 months, and Mitch McConnell is preparing for that. It's just that simple. demand that AT&T sever their ties with uh, One America News, OAN, this uh, right-wing television network. It turns out that, and this is totally weird, AT&T owns DirecTV. DirecTV carries One America Network, and apparently AT&T or John Stanky, the CEO, or one of the people there, had a lot to do with getting One America Network on DirecTV. It's one of the two big satellite, you know, Dish and Direct. Uh, two big satellite TV providers. Free Speech TV is also on DirecTV, and um, Free Speech TV actually pays DirecTV to carry for carriage, uh, to, to be on the network. But DirecTV pays OAN to be on the network. It's the exact opposite. We pay them, but with a right-wing network, they pay the network. And I'm still scratching my head on this one. So now you've got uh, a, uh, one of the nation's leading women's group, Ultraviolet, 
uh, just issued this press release saying, if John Stanky, he's the CEO of the world's largest communications company, AT&T, if John Stanky is unwilling to correct this course by severing ties with OAN, firing anti-abortion extremist Ed Gillespie. Ed Gillespie uh, is a vice president now with uh, AT&T, and he used to be the head of the Republican Party. Um, and pledging to stop funding right-wing racist and anti-woman politicians, he should step down. And uh, they, uh, they go on to say, uh, the leadership and tenure of now CEO and former COO John Stanky at AT&T is marked by his enabling of the radical right-wing conspiracy platform One America News and the funding for anti-choice politicians behind Texas's dangerous abortion ban. Uh, AT&T has pushed back saying, we don't have a financial interest in One American News um, and do not fund OAN, but they do pay them to be on the network, which is weird. NAACP president and CEO Derek Johnson in a public statement said, we are outraged to learn that AT&T has been funneling tens of millions of dollars into OAN since the network's inception. AT&T has, as a result, caused irreparable damage to our democracy. The press should inform the American public with facts, not far-right propaganda and conspiracy theories. So uh, watch this space. That's, that's an absolutely fascinating one. And it'll be interesting to see how much blowback there is. How many people who have AT&T telephone service, for example, switch to uh, T-Mobile or uh, Sprint or Verizon or something else. Um, you know, uh, keep your eye on this. One other story here I wanted to share with you that I think is just absolutely fascinating. The uh, two-term Oklahoma superintendent of public instruction. Now, in the state of Oklahoma, this is the person who's like in charge of all schools in the state, and it's a statewide elected position. But this person is a, a Republican. Her name is Joy Hoffmeister. She's a Republican. She's been elected twice to statewide office as the superintendent of instruction in Oklahoma. And she just flipped parties from Republican to Democratic and said that she's going to run against the governor, Governor Stitt, Kevin Stitt. She's going to run against him in the election next year. She says, through extremism, partisanship, ineffective leadership, he is hurting our education system, our health care system, and our infrastructure. She's a lifelong Republican. And, you know, what she's objecting to, he's, he has pushed a bill that would ban school districts from requiring students to wear masks. Stitt's appointees to the Oklahoma State Board of Education ignored her objections by voting to, make, uh, to only make its coronavirus school response plan voluntary. She says, somebody said, well, what would you do different from Governor Stitt if you became governor? And she said, when you understand how now how critical it was to have had a leader who contemplated expert advice and opinion and set an example to protect Oklahomans, we could have avoided thousands of people dying. I wouldn't have churned through four state epidemiologists in the middle of a pandemic. This is the first statewide elected official anywhere to switch parties while in office since 2018. And she just became a Democrat. Which tells me that in, and in right, bright red Oklahoma, which tells me that the Republican Party is, is in some trouble right now between the Trump get sick and die wing and the old Republican, you know, uh, Main Street, uh, let's get in bed with corporations and, and hate unions, but hey, we don't want people to die wing. You know, the Liz Cheney wing versus the Matt Gates wing. By the way, the reports are coming out that Matt Gates is playing good hub hubby now to avoid uh, all his sex trafficking charges. Amazing, amazing stuff. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, thanks for listening to us on TuneIn. What's up? I wanted to talk about the uh, jobs report. Mm -hmm. 
The 194,000 jobs for September is actually a higher number than Donald Trump averaged for his first three years before the pandemic. So Correct. Biden's 194 during the pandemic is higher than what Donald Trump averaged before the pandemic. And, uh, and they've, they've adjusted the number for the previous month to 366,000 in August. That would have been Donald Trump's second highest number ever. Right, but that's not the story the media is carrying. I, I agree with you. In fact, uh, I, I believe it was uh, uh, Institute for Politics. Well, I'm not sure which think tank. I got an email from one of the progressive think tanks this morning saying that uh, these are actually great numbers when you dig into them and you find that actual private sector employment is up way above that number because public sector employment has gone down by a couple hundred thousand. Part of that is in schools. You've got teachers leaving schools, presumably because of the pandemic. They don't want to face that. You've got uh, some police departments that have had attrition. You've got other government positions that people are leaving. Um, it, it, there's just a whole bunch of pieces to this. But, you know, that it's actually not a bad news story, Larry. When you, when you take into consideration uh, COVID, every time COVID deaths go up, um, the, uh, the number of people uh, seeking jobs drops. In the mm -hmm. case of uh, Donald Trump, his first spike saw 20,000 jobs lost in, in the next month. And then he had another spike uh, in, in December of uh, 2020 that saw 300,000 jobs lost. Those are the two losses that he had, really big losses that he had. Is, is, um, they occurred when spikes occurred. We just went through a spike for August and September. Biden's number stayed positive. And every time we have a situation where, where the American people think they can do something about COVID, like when we started wearing masks, that caused people to go back to work when Donald Trump was president. And then when he got the uh, vaccine in the last month of his office, again, people started going back to work. And his last month was a positive month. Mm -hmm. And Biden's months have been positive ever since the vaccine has come in. And then we had the spike that, that Biden able, was able to survive. And now the pill might start coming in. And, yeah. and numbers are going down already, even before we get the pill. Yeah. If Biden can see the deaths drop back down to uh, less than 200 for the whole American population, I expect to see somewhere between 700 to a million jobs for several months in the next three to four months. I think you're absolutely right, Larry. I got press release. This is from the Center for Economic Policy, CEPR, the Center for Economic Policy Research. CEPR.org or .net, excuse me, is their website. This is by Dean Baker. And he said, first, the private sector employment rose by a respectable 317,000 following August's 332,000. He said, the biggest surprise is a drop of 123,000 in state and local government employment, putting September level $874,000 below, or not dollars, uh, employees, below the pre-pandemic level. And he said, it's hard to understand since most schools are open in state and law. And then he goes into, you know, why. And wage growth has remained strong. Uh, he said the low-paying industries are shedding jobs. Nursing home employment fell by 15,800. Well, that may be because a lot of people in nursing homes died. And there's just not demand. Worker. He said, the thing about worker, go ahead. The thing about worker participation, um, there are a lot of people who got COVID. Uh, what was it, 30, 45 million Americans? Yeah. Long-term COVID is probably, uh, has probably really cut a big dent into the um, the worker participation. So those numbers are probably never going to come back up because those people just don't feel well enough 
to uh, to go back to work. Yeah, I agree. So when you when you take take all this into consideration, Biden's numbers really are are pretty good. Yeah, and, I'm with uh, you, Larry. I'm with you. You're the numbers guy, but uh, I, you know, you're agreeing with Dean Baker and the and the the numbers guy. You know, the professional economist over at CEPR. I'm with you, Larry. Thank you very much. But the media will figure out a way to say, oh, you know, woe is me. It's a terrible thing. Terrible job numbers, you know, quack, quack, quack. No, it's really not all that. Lee in Sepulveda, California. Hey, Lee, what's on your mind today? What's on my mind is cutting Donald Trump off at the knees for 2024. And I'll tell you how we do it. What they did with MAGO, you know, the all that hubbub around Make America Great Again and all that you know, bumper stickers and all that stuff. That's advertising that's valuable. So if we take the insurrection on January 6th coming up and we make a holiday out of it, everybody, we have our hats, we have our banners, we have our stuff, and we do it every year for three years, by 2024, he will be nothing. If if the people in this country who are opposed to Donald Trump and all that he did and McConnell and all the rest of them, if we can get together in that way, like the MAGA people did, we can You're, you're talking, I assume, Lee, about uh, celebrating the fact that we defeated uh, a coup attempt. Is that is that the point that you're making? Because they're, absolutely, if you make absolutely. that a holiday, as they're going to claim it as their holiday and say we're celebrating the coup attempt itself. No, insurrection. The, the defeat of the insurrection, like we should celebrate the defeat of the Civil War. Yeah. We shouldn't let them get away with, you know, going, well, you but know. But there is no holiday for the end of the Civil War. Nonsense. I know. That's the point. We should. We should emerge them and say, yes, we're winning this thing. We, we never get any positives. Yeah. All we get is flack from those goofballs. Yeah, there should. And in fact, you know, looking back, there probably should have been a, a holiday for for uh, the end of the Civil War. I mean, it just just occurred to me. Yeah, that was Absolutely. a huge victory. Yeah. But, but I'll bet Let's it never happened because, because Andrew Johnson, you know, would have been the guy to make it happen. And he was, you know, he was a Southerner and a slave owner. Okay, thanks a lot for the call, okay. Lee. Good to hear from thanks. you. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? We need criminal referral for these people who are going to violate their subpoenas. And last week when I called, I did give you the DOJ's comment line. It's area code 202-353-1555. I called and I say, it's time for Mary. Garland to be strong. He has the power and he has the law to indict. And the federal law is 18 U.S.C. 610. Well, it's also 1823-84, which is seditious conspiracy. Yes. Glenn Kirshner was saying that's at least three years in prison for that felony. So Trump was bold enough to do all this crime in plain sight. Well, a seditious conspiracy has up to 20 years, Jessica. I mean, there, there's, right, right. there's several laws that these guys could be prosecuted under. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Um, I don't know. I keep taking these deep dives into Roman history, and I'm loving it. I tried to find the roots, the very roots of conservatism, and I got back to the Romans and their concept of Mas Mariam. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not. It means the way of our ancestors. What they said was that the way of our ancestors and that anything that's different from the way our ancestors did things 
was wrong. In other words, they said that it's done contrary to the usage and customs of our ancestors seems not to be right. This was not in law, but this was the theme, and it was all based on the family, which was patriarchal, and family actually mean people, it meant household. In other words, it was an organization, mm-hmm. and it was a hierarchy. Yeah, you know, and, Aristotle wrote a and, whole treatise on, on how to run your family, including uh, multiple mm-hmm. paragraphs about how to supervise slaves. <laughs> These were slave societies, Bill. It's, a, it's right, pretty right. amazing. I mean, that was, that was right. the Greeks, so, not the Romans, but still. It's still true today, though. I mean, it's yeah. anything that's different from before is conservatism, and they're against it. And it's based on nothing. I mean, it's not based on ideas or anything like that. It's just a negative thing. It's like, you know, um, it's not so much that uh, liberals are so good. It's that conservatives are so backwards and not, you know, not forward thinking. Um, and I don't think... Well, I, no I would say, you know, wary of change would be a better way to describe it. I'm not sure that it's necessarily, it should be necessarily described as a pejorative. You're talking about traditional conservatism as opposed to what the Republican Party is engaging in, which is radical and reactionary neo-fascism. Well, well every time there's cultism involved, it changes everything, you know, right. like the Nazis and everything else right. as compared to being fascist. But um, uh, I found it pretty interesting. And also, I dug really far back, and I, I didn't realize in 500 B.C., when Rome, Rome was still a republic, they had kings. But the kings were elected by the Senate, mm-hmm. and the kings did not go by genetics. If they didn't like the king, they sent him into exile. Right. When one king died, they voted on a new king. And then they got really... Uh, pissed off at the whole thing when uh, the last king uh, raped one of the uh, Vestal virgins and claimed it was a virgin birth and that that person should be their uh, uh, the new king and they just threw him out of there and had no kings at all until Caesar came in. And, well, that's interesting. Uh, and, and in the meantime, they, they the only reason they had a king is they said, well, we need a leader at some point if there's a war. So what they decided to do is the two censors who ran the government, uh, every month they would pass the fascia back from each other, and one would hold power. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, de- they decided that if there's a war, there's a problem, they will elect somebody to be the dictator to run the right. country uh, on emergency powers when there's a problem. Yeah, I'm familiar Otherwise, with that. Bill, no, are you reading uh, uh, Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, or are you, uh, there's a... Uh, a newer one that I read last year. In fact, we—I think we had the get, huh? the author on, but I'm forgetting the name of it. And so is Sean, right? Okay. <laughs> About the Roman Republic. Not really. Just going through the internet, finding uh-huh. real sources. You know. Yeah. Uh, because you know, Gibbons is, is generally considered the authoritative source. You know, the rise and fall of the Roman right. Empire. But this new author, I think it's called Fragile Republic or something like that. It's like that, you know, some kind of modifying word to the word republic. I'm sorry, it's been a couple of years since I read it, but it it was absolutely fascinating. And the parallels, I reference it in my book Mm -hmm. on oligarchy, actually. The parallels between the Roman Republic in its last days as it led up to Augustus and the Trump administration are shocking. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 